Well, good morning. What a joy to be together after the week we've just had. And after missing this gathering last week, it's especially uh, uh, a cause for rejoicing. Uh, if you haven't already, please be joining me in your Bibles in the book of Galatians, chapter 2. We pick up where we left off two weeks ago in verse 11. We'll be looking at verses 11 to 14 together this morning, and we're coming to a story that is in some ways quite unique in terms of what we're going to hear described. You know that in the Old Testament, uh, we find in many places stories where the heroes of the faith have their moral failings put on display for everyone to see. The Bible is not shy about the fallenness, about the sinfulness of even the, what we would consider the heroes uh, of, of some of those accounts. Uh, we know about Moses' anger and lack of faith. We know about David's sin with Bathsheba and regarding Uriah. Uh, we know about Solomon's failings at the end of his life. Uh, th those are constant. They are regular throughout the Old Testament account. When we come into the New Testament and we get to the Gospels, we are, uh, it's made very clear to us the slowness of Jesus' disciples to believe uh, and to walk in that belief. So there's some examples of stories like that in the Gospels. But there's not much focus on the personal spiritual walks of the apostles, for example, outside of the Gospel accounts. We see them after the Gospels pinning inspired scripture, and we uh, see the things they direct our attention to. Well, there's a bit of an exception to that in the passage we're looking at this morning. We, we are reminded in these uh, four verses that those men who have been commissioned by Christ as His apostles continue to be sinners in need of God's grace. So Peter here is the case in point. Peter is not only going to contradict his own gospel message with hypocritical behavior. Now, he's going to do it in a way that leads the people around him into the same hypocrisy. He's going to lead others around him astray in his hypocrisy. And he's going to do this, the text is going to make clear, uh, because of something that you and I are very personally familiar with. He's going to do this because of the fear of man that he encounters and that he succumbs to. Proverbs 29:25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Let's begin this morning by reading the events of verses 11 to 14. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Paul continues his account here in this way. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before, for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, 
live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. It's convenient for us, working through these four verses, that we have something of a rhythm here in terms of what Paul's going to tell us. There's a shift between a focus on what he, Paul, does and says and what Peter uh, winds up doing here. A rhythm between displays by Paul of a fear of God and displays by Peter of a fear of man. So in verses 1 and 4, we're going to see something that the fear of God produces in a life. And in the two in between, verses 2 and 3, we'll see something that the fear of man produces in us. It's a very easy way to think of what we're seeing as we walk through these verses. The first thing we see then in verse 11 has to do with the fear of God. We see here that the fear of God is able to stand under pressure. The fear of God stands under pressure. Look again at verse 11. It said, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. Now at this point, let's not think yet about the controversy itself that they are dealing with. Let's just think about what Paul is having to do here. Let's put ourselves in his shoes a little bit. Now Paul is, according to what he says of himself in 1 Corinthians 15, he is the least of the apostles. He's an apostle as one untimely born, he says. He is the least worthy to be called an apostle by his own testimony. That's who Paul is. Who's Peter? Peter is literally the rock. I mean, his name means the rock, and he was named that by Jesus Christ himself in John chapter 1, right? That's who Peter is. In Acts chapter 5, before Paul even was Paul. Before Paul even had spiritual life, in Acts chapter 5, Peter's shadow healed sick people when he walked by them in Jerusalem. That's who Peter is in these early days of the church. And it's in these early days that Peter himself now comes up to Antioch, to the baby church in Antioch to support and encourage the church where Paul is working with Barnabas to, to minister. And in the middle of a meal, it seems, from what will follow, Paul has to make the decision to oppose Peter face to face. Now let's remember some other things, too. There's another thing we know about Paul. Paul's going to tell us elsewhere that he has something of a reputation of being strong in writing, but weak in speech. So he tells us about people's esteem of him in 2 Corinthians 10.10. For they say, of me, he's saying, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. This is what Paul is like face to face. Some even wonder, are you familiar with perhaps with the thorn in the flesh that God gave to Paul? Uh, it seems to humble him in light of the fact that he has seen visions of heaven itself. God has given him a thorn in the flesh to deal with his entire life. For reasons like this, many people wonder if that thorn in the flesh had to do with something like a speech impediment, something like that. We don't know that for sure, but these are the reasons that they would speculate. This is, do you have a picture of 
who Paul is, and he has to stand there and oppose the rock, Peter, to his face in public. It would be a fearful thing in that sense, but let's not even just think of it in fearful terms. Who is this that he's talking to? This is the beloved Peter. Peter has spoken boldly for his Savior in front of rulers at this point. Peter has been arrested for his devotion to Christ. It's worth taking a moment like this to comprehend what Paul is choosing to do in confronting Peter and the weight of the decision. And I ask you, why would, Pete, why would Paul do this? Conditions like we're describing, why would he do that? Well, we could put it very simply. He would do it if he feared God more than men. He'd be willing to do it if his fear was located before the Lord God. He would do it if he loves the truth of the gospel more than he loves temporary peace. Now let me say that again because that reflects some of, of uh, what I think we see most clearly in what's about to happen. Paul would do this if he loves the truth of the gospel more than he loves temporary peace. We're seeing in Paul here an example that as a result of the fear of God, sometimes peace and harmony is not the right path to take. Charles Spurgeon said it very well and very simply in this context. He said, Dear is Peter, but dearer still the truth. I wonder, is that how we feel about the truth? We'll see even this morning, there are obviously times and occasions where we can agree to disagree about things. In fact, where the Bible will call us to be willing to agree to disagree and, uh, and, and to walk with charity and accommodating to one another. There are situations where that's necessary. But when a truth claim threatens the message of God's plan for salvation, are we ready and willing to stand there and say, dear is, you fill in the blank with the person's name, but dearer still the truth. Paul describes the problem in this way in verse 11. He says, Peter stood condemned in what he had done. He was in the wrong. This isn't speaking of the salvation of Peter. It's speaking of the, the self-evident uh, fact that he had departed from the place of God's pleasure and command. He was in disobedience to God as he's doing this. And he's in the wrong on matters relating to all of the issues Paul's been describing so far in chapter 2 of Galatians. That's why he brings this up. Peter is making an error here regarding what was described in verses 1 to 10 that we saw a couple of weeks ago now. He's been describing it for us. And Peter here now in Antioch is doing something that's put him in conflict with that group that was described in Jerusalem, of which he is included. Peter, James, Paul, these three men are present and involved in the discussion, wrestling out how do we uh, approach the Gentiles in light of the truth of the gospel. That's already been described in verses 1 to 10. And this is where Paul begins to describe the situation in verse 12. In coming to verse 12, we shift now from that initial picture of what the fear of God produces, what the fear of God does. It is able to stand under pressure. 
And now we have the first picture of what fear of man does. We see in verse 12, the fear of man is willing to pay too high a cost for the sake of peace. Peace is a really good thing, isn't it? Peace is a noble and worthy goal to pursue. We are to be peacemakers. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. We follow the prince of peace. And sometimes we have to be people who are capable of compromise for the sake of peace, don't we? But here's what we see in passages like what's before us this morning. I can know that I have slipped into life by the fear of man when I find myself willing to pay an unfaithfully high cost in order to get peace. There are some costs that are too costly. Look again at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, Paul writes, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Now, it's very important to understand just what Peter is dealing with here. And it's not as easy to see as you might think that it is. There are a couple of very real possibilities as to what the situation is that's going on here. There's two of them. Uh, I, I'll tell you, I am uh, persuaded that it is the second of these two possibilities. But there are people who think differently, and I used to think differently. So I'll explain to you in a minute why I've changed my mind on this. That some people think that the situation is, here's the first possibility, that in terms of who Peter is fearing, it's these men themselves who have come up that Peter is fearing. So the certain men from James here in verse 12 are the circumcision party that Peter is afraid of. So it's their mere presence there that's what is leading Peter to change his behavior. That's how some people tend to see this as playing out. Others disagree with that. Say, no, that's not what's, that's not what's happening here. The second suggestion is that what's happening here is that James has sent men up to Antioch representing him. He sent them up with some kind of a message that Peter receives that gives him fear. Probably that message has to do with the Jews in Jerusalem. Uh, and it seems that the message is coming because news of how Peter has been behaving with Gentiles has reached Jerusalem and caused a stir. So James has sent up news from Jerusalem to inform him of what's going on. And it's that report that is creating fear in Peter. So in that way of thinking about this, Peter is fearing a group who are not there with him in Antioch. He's fearing unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem or perhaps elsewhere. We don't have information about what's in that letter, if that's what's going on here. The good news is it really, what we take from this ultimately doesn't really change, as we will see. So that's the good news when you come into a struggle like this. But it's not an insignificant difference. And let me tell you why I'm, I'm persuaded that it is the second situation uh, that's happening. Let's remember some things about what's going on in the timeline here for Peter. Now, Acts chapter 10 has already taken place in Peter's life. In Acts chapter 10, Peter received a vision from God. God told him himself, uh, all foods are clean. Do not declare unclean what I have called clean. This has already been told to Peter by God. Peter has responded to it by eating with Gentiles. Furthermore, we have 
plenty of indication that what we're seeing here in verses 11 to 14 actually comes chronologically after what we saw in verses 1 to 10. There's every indication that Paul is giving a chronological set of events here. So verses 1 to 10 happened. Peter, James, uh, Paul got together in Jerusalem, talked through these things. Uh, you remember what we saw two weeks ago, uh, what they had decided to do. They've already together faced down the false brothers there in Jerusalem, the Judaizers. Paul said, we didn't yield to them even for a moment. They, they judged uh, Peter and James judged that nothing needed to be added to Paul's message to the, to the Gentiles. You remember those, those verdicts that they came out with? That's already happened before Peter comes up to Antioch. So if the first situation is the correct one, if Peter is afraid of these men sent by James, what that's got to mean is that after those things took place in verses 1 to 10, Peter sent a group of Judaizers to represent him and sent them up to, uh, uh, James, excuse me, sent those men up to Peter in Antioch. And Peter, who's already faced them down, is now intimidated by them and changes his behavior to satisfy them. Why would James send men to Peter who would take offense at eating with Gentiles? I don't think that he did. I think he sent them with a message. It seems that that's what's happening here. Men have come up from James and reported to Peter that news of his eating with the Gentiles has led to some outrage among the circumcision party, perhaps even some out-and-out -out persecution against Jewish Christians there. If that's right, if, we're, if I'm seeing that rightly, then what's happening is that Peter is fearing the unbelieving Jews who are threatening to persecute Christians. And he decides out of that fear, he decides that it's worth it for their sake to accommodate here in Antioch. He decides that it's worth it to compromise on this issue. Okay, fine. Uh, I've been eating with the Gentiles. The food purity regulations mean nothing to me anymore. Uh, but for the sake of peace, for my brothers in Jerusalem, I will require that to eat with me, to share Christian fellowship with me, you must keep the laws and restrictions of the Old Covenant. I will accommodate in that way. It's a prerequisite to Christian fellowship, in other words. It's a prerequisite to being welcomed into the fellowship of God's people. And it's a prerequisite given from the behavior and example of Peter himself, the rock. What kind of an impact is that going to have on the Christians around him? Peter has just rebuilt the wall that Ephesians chapter 2 says Christ died to tear down. Ephesians 2 verses 14 and 15. Just hear this description. Paul's speaking about Gentile relations. He says, for Jesus, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It's the very wall that Peter is now rebuilding in Antioch. And Paul says, in withdrawing like this from your Gentile brothers, Peter, you stand condemned before God. All of that 
coming from Peter because of the power of the fear of man. How powerful is the temptation to live by a fear of man? It's this powerful. Peter himself stumbles and falls. But do you notice, with Peter here, this is very helpful for us, and maybe even very timely, uniquely for us. With Peter, this fear of man isn't the kind of fear of man I typically think about. When I think of fear of man, I usually jump in my mind to uh, fear of what someone else is going to think about me. Fear of someone's opinion of me. So I'm pressured to conform because I worry about what they'll think. That is fear of man. That would be uh, a failing in its own right. But that's not, that's not exactly the, the shape that Peter's fear of man here is taking. This is, this is a fear of the onset of harm or suffering. Jesus knew that was going to come, and he warns us, do not fear those who can kill the body and afterwards have nothing more that they can do. We're not to fear man and live by that fear just because of the physical threat that they represent. But when it comes to Peter here, notice, he, if we're thinking of the situation rightly, he's not even afraid, not immediately anyway, of potential harm or suffering put upon his own person. This is a fear for the suffering of those that he loved. That is a completely different conversation. That's a completely different pill to swallow, isn't it? I think that there are um, a number of potential means of persecution, or loss, that I'm confident I am ready to personally suffer through faithfully. I think that's the case. I pray that it is. But I feel that it is. But the notion of my kids, or if the Lord grants someday, my grandkids having to suffer because of a decision that I would make, that's a different level of challenge coming in the form of the fear of man. Now, one thing that means for me is I sure hope that I don't swallow that pill in a situation where the gospel didn't actually require it of me. I sure hope I'm growing in discernment to know what hills I must die on for gospel faithfulness and what hills are hills in which there is room for some sort of accommodation. But what we're seeing with Peter and Paul here is we're seeing gospel faithfulness is of such importance that even if, even costs that protects others that I love, those are costs too high to pay if I fear God rather than man. And I'm concerned that in, in our day of extreme comfort and hope for the future, etc., that we, we may not be yet ready to consider that kind of a cost. Cost that goes beyond me and extends to those that I would care about. We need to compare this sort of situation to other situations that regard compromise that can be similar to this. Uh, situations where the Bible commends compromise, and we will do that. Let's notice one more thing, though, before we start to compare what we're seeing here with Peter to some other situations. Uh, in verse 13, there's one more thing we see about the fear of man, and it's very simple. Fear of man is extremely contagious. 
It's a contagious thing. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Doesn't this highlight for us the power that we have to influence the people around us? Certainly this gives warning to people in formal positions of leadership, but it does not end there. All of us have been given spheres of influence in our lives that are incredibly powerful. And with that influence, here's what we have to remember, with that influence always comes accountability as to how we will use that influence. And this power of contagion exists in each and every one of those realms where we have been given influence over others. Peter was willing to compromise where he shouldn't have, and it led other people astray. His compromise led to infidelity to the gospel. Now, we've been talking about the need for discernment here. Let me, let me give you a statement. Let's, see, let's do a, a bit of a thought experiment here together, all right? This is a three-word sentence. How does this sentence hit your ears based on what we're seeing here? Here's the sentence. Compromise is infidelity. Compromise is infidelity. Is that what we're taking from this situation? I hope that that statement makes you do a bit of a double take with it. Is that what we're taking away here with Peter? Can I read a statement to you from this same Paul somewhere else to add into the consideration? All right? Uh, I do this to help us to see what, what we mean when we think of this as very difficult ground to stand in. Here's something else that Paul says, this time to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 to 22. You may be familiar with this. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but being under the law of Christ that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. So let's see. With that, you got Galatians 2, 11 to 14. Peter accommodates to the desires of Jews, and he is condemned. Paul accommodates to the desires of Jews, and he is an example for us to follow. What's the difference? If we had more time, we could do the same thing with Romans chapter 14 and the conscience issues that it raises there. That's another very important passage when we're thinking about these kinds of things. And he's going, Paul in our passage here, is going to explain a lot of this in verse 14 that we're about to get to. But even before we move there, I hope you can tell already some big differences between what's going on here with Peter in Galatians 2 and what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 9. It has to do with the truth of the gospel. All of this has to do with the truth of the gospel. If the truth of the gospel sets us free, as Paul's going to say, we'll spend a lot of time in this study looking at what this freedom means and entails. But if the truth of the gospel sets us free, then whatever that freedom means, whatever that is, I am called to live steadfastly in that freedom. 
But the reality of the gospel in these cases means that food customs are an irrelevant matter when it comes to Christian fellowship. Irrelevant. That doesn't mean that food customs don't continue to have some cultural value, things like that. It also doesn't mean that now there's a new Christian set of requirements where I've got to eat pork at least one meal a day to show that I'm not under Old Covenant restrictions. doesn't mean that either. It means none of this matters anymore. So for Paul to eat like a Jew in order to fellowship with Jews, it's fine. It's not hypocrisy. It's what we call, there's a fancy word for it, adiaphora. I think it's a Latin word. It means indifferent matters. But that same thing means that for Peter to require eating like a Jew for brotherly fellowship, that's not fine. That is hypocrisy. The gospel declares news of a new reality through the work of Christ. And we are commanded to live in light of reality. Now that leads us well into verse 14 where we see the second picture of the fear of God. Let's hear what Paul would help us with in this wrestling we're describing this morning. Here's the, the next thing we see, the second thing about the fear of God in verse 14. It's this, fear of God is not afraid to live in the truth of the gospel. Verse 14, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? The second half of this verse is quite straightforward, isn't it? Paul says to Peter in public, there in Antioch, you have already been shown, Peter, that there is now neither Jew nor Gentile. You personally know the freedom that has been earned us, that has been won us in Christ, to live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. And as long as you've been here in Antioch, you've been living like a Gentile and not like a Jew. And it's fine. You've been enjoying the freedom earned you by the blood of Christ, and yet now you seek to force others to avoid living in that same freedom if they're going to fellowship with you. What Paul calls that in the first half of the verse here is he calls it conduct not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's what this line of behavior is. Galatians 5.1, the gospel has set us free. This is what we're going to see. You remember what we read a few minutes ago in Ephesians 2 about the dividing wall that Christ abolished? He broke it down. He called it the wall of hostility. Christ abolished it by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Listen, that reflects the new reality that has come in Christ. Things have changed. This is what reality is now. And living a manner of life that does not reflect this reality, that is conduct not in step with the truth of the gospel. Because Peter is behaving as if the old covenant distinctions were still in place. And they are not. Now, how do we apply that in our context today? It's a pretty good question because we, our struggle is not with a society around us that really wants to restore old covenant requirements. That's not what we're dealing with at all. 
is it? But our struggle is with a society that is hostile to new covenant realities. Our context is within a society that would refuse and that would seek to force us to deny the realities that Christ's coming has proven and has established. And we could talk about that for another hour. These realities that are true in light of the gospel, that are true of the gospel, that are consequences of what Christ has done now, that we say we live to affirm we live in. Here's some examples. It is true because Christ died and was raised again. He was vindicated by the Father. It is true that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that we remain on this earth as His ambassadors. That is true. It is true that trust in Christ alone is required for forgiveness of sin, for rescue, for life. Trust in Christ alone is required. It's true what is said in John 3.36, whoever does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Or as he'll say later here in Galatians, it's true that those who practice the deeds of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those things are true. And regarding these truths, can you hear the calling to us this morning coming out of Galatians 2.14. It's not given this way as a command, but do you see the calling upon your life? It is the call to walk in step with the truth of the gospel. Be willing that your life would be walked in step with the truth of the gospel. We must embrace the freedom that Christ has purchased for us. To live, to walk in the truth Let us be people who are not afraid to be people of truth. We will not live by lies. No one may force us to become a people of lies. Even if those are lies that we do not believe, but that we might go along with to get along. We need not be forced to live by lies. If I stand for love, love of God, love of of neighbor, I stand for truth. The two cannot be separated from one another. Now, the second thing we want to see here as we're thinking of how this applies to us is we want to be careful to um, avoid unfaithful compromise while distinguishing the proper places of compromise. We've touched on that a bit, just in the way of how incredibly challenging this is going to be in the days to come. Think of the vast number of places that we have to wrestle today when it comes to discerning if I'm living according to the fear of God or the fear of man, if I stand condemned in my compromise or if I am seeing the right uh, lines to draw. Do I attend the so-called wedding of my family member who has chosen a homosexual lifestyle? Do I do that? What does it mean if I do that? What does it say? Do I accept the transgendered personal pronouns of my coworker at work? Is that unfaithful compromise? Does my answer change to that if I knew that person beforehand and now I don't? Or if I'm just meeting them for the first time? How, how do I know what's, what's acceptable compromise and what is, what is uh, fear of man? Do I sign that oath of inclusivity that slides across my boss's desk? 
and is a requirement for my continued employment there? Is that acceptable compromise to sign it? What if they, what if they don't require a signature, but they do publicly display a policy of inclusion regarding diverse sexual orientations and gender identities? On the day that they roll that out, do I need to quit my job? Is that what faithfulness looks like? Can I just put my head down and continue to do a good job and be quiet and keep working there? Um, if I don't say something immediately, is that sinful compromise? I, I list these things out not to answer them, but to point out how complicated these issues have become for us today. And my friends, I've not mentioned anything in that, in that list that Christian brothers and sisters in our country today have not already had to walk through. Those things are here. I don't want to be someone who dies on every hill indiscriminately as if fidelity to Christ means that there's never any room for compromise. But I also understand how attractive and easy to justify it will be to take the slippery path of compromise. Right to where, like Peter, I wind up standing condemned. Are we properly alerted as a church body to the, to the great need we have for wisdom and discernment? You see the need coming. Are you praying for your church family in these things? Many different family situations represented in this room. Many different work situations represented in this room. We are going to be in need of prayer for one another, for God's wisdom. For now, though, as we contemplate such questions, this morning we simply need to hear the call of verse 14. Christians are a people who live our lives in step with the truth of the gospel. We fear God, we do not fear man. And thus, while we live lives of joy and love and freedom that is befitting of the gospel, we also work to rid ourselves of a fear of man that will tempt us to accept lies or to propagate lies, live by lies, out of a desire for self-preservation. We have a lot of work to do to be ready to live as a people who love the truth. But I hope I speak for all of us this morning when I say that come what may, we will love the Lord our God. And we will walk through our days in conscious enjoyment and insistence upon the realities of the new covenant. Because they're realities that were won by the blood of our Savior. Before we turn to the Lord's table, let's take a moment and pray together. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we declare to you this morning, we declare to one another the truth of what you have revealed in 1 John 1.7, that the blood of Jesus, your Son, cleanses us from all sin. And we call out to you this morning, Lord, in light of what you have shown us here. Help us, O Lord. Help us to walk by faith. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, always being mindful of the great cost that you paid so that your people would go free. We thank you for the blood of your Son shed for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
when we think of the cost that has been paid for our redemption, we're in a very good place then to receive the grace that is given to us as we join together at the Lord's table. That cost is a part of what we bear witness to in participating like this together. We hold up the cup, signifying Jesus' blood shed for us, and we hold up the bread, signifying Jesus' body, which was given for us. We cannot do those things without being reminded of the cost that our Savior bore, so that we would be here as God's people this morning. And in fact, in what we're about to do, we don't just remind ourselves. We bear witness to the world such things. We are in this life acting out the sure blessing that awaits us through our union with Christ. It's another thing to think about here. We're not only looking back as we take the Lord's Supper, we're looking forward to the blessings that are ours through union with Christ. It's the blessing of blessed fellowship with one another in Christ and with Christ Himself. What you're about to take here is the cup of God's blessing earned for you by Christ and now shared with us His people. So let's prepare to picture the gospel in these ways as we sing together.